political correctness is actually useless, right? Because it doesn't actually let us have real authentic conversations. It's sort of just like like a veneer that we're functioning within. If there is a, a better word or a better phrase or a better expression that I that I can use, then why wouldn't I opt for it? You need to do all of these efforts in an intersectional way. I'm not just a woman. I'm not just my sexual orientation. If I ask either of you, okay, tell me one identity factor that describes you and that's it. You're leaving so much of, of who you are and all of your complexity on the table. We've seen countless examples of say, a facial recognition software, voice recognition that can't recognize people who use different dialects. How, how is that a useful product? Welcome to the Generation Hustle podcast, a show that explores the world of business, entrepreneurship, and culture, all centered around the millennial. I'm your co-host, Sherison, alongside my good friend, Amin, and today we're exploring an important topic that has taken the forefront of social justice, diversity and inclusion. Episode 32 is with Dr. Sarah Saska. Dr. Saska is the co-founder and CEO of Feminuity, a management consulting firm that helps companies build diverse teams equitable processes, inclusive products, and cultures where people belong. Before founding her company, she led pioneering doctoral research detailing the need for technology and innovation that is equitably and ethically designed. She has delivered TEDx and keynote talks around the globe and was named amongst WXN Canada's Top 100 Most Powerful Women in 2015 and 2017. We sit down with Dr. Saska as she details the importance of diversity and inclusion in today's world. She highlights the issue of representation at the C-suite level, political correctness, and the need for an intersectional view of individuals. This was an incredibly informative conversation that sets the bar for 2021, the year of accountability as she puts it. So without further ado, Dr. Saska. Awesome. Well, thank you to you both. I, I appreciate the ask and I'm happy to be here. Oh yeah, just let's just get this started. As I mentioned earlier, you know, diversity and inclusion has become such a you know the quite the hot button topic uh, in recent years. As a lot of companies are now continually using it almost as like a marketing tool for hiring in businesses uh, in general. So first, in your own words, can you help us define uh, what diversity and inclusion actually mean, and does it exclusively only relate to say race and gender? So many things to unpack there. I love it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so what does diversity, equity, and inclusion, like what the heck, what does it mean in the context of the workplace, right? Mm-hmm. Well, from my perspective, it's a field of practice that ultimately brings social justice into the workplace. And I think the only reason we don't necessarily use the language of, of justice or social justice is because it really just hasn't been sort of the norm uh, to talk about in the context of many workplaces. And I think for many years, it's not been considered sort of a palatable uh, approach or conversation, right? We've, for many years, we've talked about the fact that we need to keep our, you know, our personal lives out of the workplace, right? That we need to separate our personal life from our professional life. Um, And that perhaps there's no room for politics in the context of the workplace. Mm -hmm. Uh, but those days, I, I don't know if they actually ever really existed, but if they did, they're gone, right? So um, yeah, for me, diversity, equity, inclusion as, as a field of practice is about figuring out how, out how to bring more justice um, into the context of the workplace to make more equitable systems, to make more human systems for everybody. 
Right. And so like, that's a great point. I think a lot of people get uh, tied into thinking like diversity and inclusion. And I think I've had discussions with a few individuals as well, and they only specifically think it's race and gender. So it's beyond that kind of scope. Right. Um, and so like, why do you believe it's such an important factor today for companies when it comes to hiring? Because, you know, um, and how's that concept kind of evolved over time? And is education and exposure within media um, really something that has dr- driven a huge impact on the subject matter? You like to ask like 10 questions in one question. <laughs> I, I see you. I see you. Um, okay. Well, well, to the piece around is, is this work, is diversity, equity, inclusion only about race and gender? Uh, absolutely not. However, many organizations, they have, they have definitely treated it as such, right? For too long, um, especially if we, if we look at the tech sector, right? Um, Lean In, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, came out a number of years ago, and it was all about sort of encouraging women within the context of the workplace. Um, ultimately, it really was a book targeted for white, able-bodied, or I guess white, uh, non-disabled, cisgender, heterosexual women, right? Like it really had a very specific audience. And, but organizations around the world really started to put a lot of efforts into supporting women within the context of the workplace, which was okay, except they didn't do it with an intersectional framework. And so it meant that it was advancing some women, but certainly not all women, right? And in, in more recent months, right? Organizations who maybe even haven't ever talked about diversity, equity, inclusion before are suddenly talking about anti-racism and anti-black racism or anti-indigenous racism, racism, which we're happy, very, very happy to Mm -hmm. see this, right? Because these are wildly overdue conversations and needs and demands. Uh, But you need to do all of these efforts in an intersectional way, right? No one person is sort of one thing, right? I'm not just a woman. I'm not just my sexual orientation, right? If If I asked either of you to just tell me like, Okay, tell me one identity factor that describes you and that's it. You're, you're leaving so much of, of who you are and all of your complexity on the table, right? So when we only talk about gender or only talk about race, we're forgetting about the other you know million different ways that people show up in the world and all of the other lived experiences that make uh, you know all of us important. So if, if orgs are trying to advance efforts that are gender first or only race first, um, that's okay, but ultimately, if it's not intersectional in its approach, right, it's not going to actually do much. Like, li- really, little will change. I mean, you make a good point there, uh, where you know, uh, in terms of like the human person or however you want to describe it, there's so many different traits and factors um, that belong to that individual that you know, I feel like sometimes. A lot of companies get lost in that whole um, act of diversity saying, oh, we need to hire X amount of African-American individuals or, um, you know, females or whatever it may be. Um, And I feel like, you know, that's not like the wholesome approach of diversity. And so I think you're spot on when you mentioned that whole aspect of that. Totally. Right. And I think a lot of organizations like to your question, right, around recruitment, right, that a lot of organizations are sort of just using diversity, equity, inclusion as a, like a marketing uh, promotional sort of pull um, and that they're very much focused on the recruitment side of things. Absolutely. Right. Because that's the easiest part of this whole process. Right. It's really it's actually really easy to recruit and get 
people in the door, right? To get people with a diversity of lived experiences through the door. It's not actually that hard. The hardest part is retaining them and making sure that once they're in the door, they actually have a good user experience on any given day, right? We we know that um, there's a really awesome study from maybe about two years ago, um, the Tech Lever study. I think it was led by the Kapoor Institute. And what they ultimately found is that churn or people leaving their jobs in tech um, is really expensive. It costs the US tech ecosystem about $16 billion annually. So people they're getting, you know, all these orgs are getting these people in the door through their, you know, recruitment strategies, but they're not keeping them because people are experiencing different forms of harassment and discrimination and all, all of the isms, all of the different forms of social inequity. So what was the point of investing all that time and time and energy on recruitment when people were out the door within six months anyways? Right? Then they're gonna go tell their friends about their not awesome experience. And ultimately, it's this spiral effect where that organization is actually going to end up with problems recruiting people, um, a diversity of people in, you know, as they move forward. And for companies that actually do it right in terms of building a diverse environment, what are the advantages that they have in the long term in terms of building, say, a business, but also from maybe the innovative gear uh, in terms of like uh, develop the business into like a unique value proposition from hiring and whatever it may be? Yeah. Well, I mean, the orgs that are most thoughtful in their approach, they won't focus on recruitment, external related stuff first. They'll focus internally. Like we always say, like, make sure things are good under the hood <laughs> before you go and put other people into your environment. Because if you haven't been really intentional about addressing you know, racism and discrimination and homophobia and transphobia and ageism and all of the things within your organization then you're recruiting people with a whole range of lived experiences into your organization. And ultimately you're, you're recruiting them and putting them in unsafe spaces. So that sucks, right? So they're going to leave. So focus internally first, right? Make sure that your existing people are, are whole and happy and that you're supporting them in the best way possible. And then you get that value add like to, to your question, right? The, when we build diverse teams, it means we have a variety of like lived experiences and perspectives around any given table. So when you're designing any type of technology, any type of innovation, like when you're designing a product, right, you're, you're going to catch a lot of those gaps and blind spots in, in your process. And you have a better shot at developing or building something or designing something that will better serve the needs and desires of a diverse and global customer base, right? We've seen countless examples of, say, an all-male team, like all-male all engineering teams who build something. And guess what? You know, a facial recognition software uh, doesn't recognize racialized right. faces or some sort of um, sort of voice recognition uh, tools, right? Yeah. That can't recognize people who use different dialects, right? Because they only train um, these systems using like North American accents, say, right? right. How, how is that a useful product? Right. And action, I actually can attest to that. So I'm not going to mention the company's name, but I used to work at a company that does work with those kind of tools. And oftentimes what we saw, and it was quite disturbing that sometimes individuals with darker pigments could not be recognized <laughs> properly. So like, say for example, myself who uh, is South Asian or someone who is an, of another ethnicity, it would be harder for us to get recognized on that social or that tool versus like the white individual. 
so there's that, right? Like yeah. being recognized properly, right? Which means, I don't know, maybe you can't open your phone or, you know, you can't use a te- piece of technology that you need to access. And then there's like an even darker flip side to this, right? Like, especially in the US, like facial recognition technologies are being used for all sorts of reasons. Um, a lot of it relating to surveillance to, you know, the state and the, the prison industrial complex and, and all of these things. And we already have good data to indicate that facial recognition technologies can't recognize racialized people's faces as well. So they're literally confusing people and putting people in jail um, based on, you know, these faulty technologies. It's it's scary. Yeah, for sure. And, and to that point, too, even in Canada, that there's a transparency issue with that. I think uh, the the. I'm not sure which region, but the, the police forces around Canada are starting to use some form of facial recognition. And they didn't disclose that until it kind of just leaked or something like that last year. So it, it's also that issue of, hey, we want to know what you guys are using and, and how you're approaching these, how, how you're approaching your strategy so that we can understand uh, what to expect. And we don't have that. Well, right. We, not just what they're using, but we need transparency around how everything is being built, right? Like, what is your product inclusion strategy? Who's at that table? Like, what are, what are your ethical, like, testing protocols, right? There's so many layers that we have no idea because so many of these tech companies function like a black box still. For sure. And to that, so, like, that kind of brings us to your company, Feminuity. Am I saying that right? Yeah, you got it. Awesome. So can we talk about your company and, and kind of what your primary offering uh, is right now in terms of how you're helping companies uh, navigate this, this kind of ecosystem? Yeah, uh, well... I mean, many, many moons ago, um, when I was in my PhD, I looked at, you know, a range of different case studies in the field of innovation studies and technology studies. And it just became evident, right, that these fields considered themselves to be gender blind or racially blind or or sort of neutral, right? Like that they didn't need that human side of things. They, They didn't have to take into account when they were designing or shaping any type of technology. Like these problems come from like they're longstanding problems, right, in these spaces. Um, and so I quickly realized that, you know, we needed to bring these lenses into these spaces because we know that, you know, AI and, and data-driven solutions are shaping our lives today, now in real time and well into the future and in, in ways that people don't even understand, right? right? And if we don't all have sort of a hand in this, I don't. we don't know what the future is going to bring, right? Because we can, you know, with AI and data-driven solutions and, you know, different forms of technology and platforms, we can scale inequality and inequities at warp speed, right? It's actually really damning. So what what we do is we work largely with those in the, the tech and innovation sector um, to certainly make sure that their their products, their, their technologies, like whatever it is they're building and shaping and bringing to the world, um, that they're following ethical protocols, that they're actually meeting the needs of a diverse and global customer base. Right. Um, but beyond that, you know, it's, it's the people who shape the product, right? So we're working with them to certainly help them to build more diverse teams and organizations, to build more equitable processes and policies and systems. So those people want to stay within the organization in the first place, right? And can actually sort of feel whole and happy there. Um, so yeah, we're we're a full service uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy firm, just working on sort of the end to end process. For sure, yeah, and that's incredible. But what I want to kind of lean in on is is how do you approach uh, these companies when when you're kind of leading these meetings and, and uh, kind of having these conversations? Obviously, it's a, obviously it's a very sensitive topic, and um, a lot of times companies are more likely to be defensive immediately or, or kind of 
yeah, just kind of reject the idea that they need to implement these things. So how do you, how does your leadership team kind of approach these sensitive topics when you're approaching um, companies with your solutions? Well, interestingly enough, we have never in the history of our business ever done any sort of external sales. Every every client, every project, all the business that we've that we've ever worked on has come to us first. Wow, that's uh, incredible. Yeah, it, it's a weird, weird, interesting frame as an entrepreneur to say that we've we've never had to pitch per se, right? Because right. they've come to us first. I mean, sometimes, of course, we have to explain how it works and all of that stuff, but. Um, I think we've been fortunate, right, that that people have a sense of the need. And um, what I think is even more difficult is that orgs will come to us um, and be really keen to work with us and, and to dig in on the project. And, you know, once we do a really fulsome assessment of the organization, you know, a quantitative survey and, and interviews and review their policies and, and practices and their product and, and then give them this findings report, right, a state of the nation, um, that that's where the rubber hits the road and that's where it's actually really difficult. And we'll find that, you know, they wanted to do this, but then when we show them what it really entails to do this work, right. well, they're not ready. Right. <laughs> so, so that's when the hard conversations often really start because it's like, you just, you just collected all this data from your people. The, you know, all of these voices are represented here. We found the gaps and the problems. Um, now it's up to you to move forward, but then, you know, the excuses will be lack of time, lack of capacity, lack of, of financial resourcing mm-hmm. and so forth, right? Or not wanting to make big, bold changes that are required, right? To to actually remedy whatever's going on there. For sure. And I love that. It's like you're reading my mind here because the next question I had for you was, it, was there, can you give us an example of how a company, um, obviously you don't have to name any names and there's a confidentiality with that, but how they were hindering in their performance perhaps based on, um, their poor investment in this diversity and inclusion concept for their company itself. Yeah. Honestly, one of the, the number one things that we see across the board is that these efforts, like they usually come up through some sort of council or task force or group that, that, that sort of builds and springs out organically. Mm-hmm. They determine there's a need. So ultimately one of the biggest problems is that organizations you know, after maybe we do an assessment, like which we're external. So, okay, we're paid. They expect that their people, this group of sort of volunteers is going to lead these efforts and, and do all this work, right? Companies in the U.S. and different places in the world, like they have chief diversity officers and related roles. You know, the majority of, of scales and, and larger in the U.S. have like DEI leads or CDOs, whatever it may be, like people who are paid who are experts with tons of experience in this field leading this work. But if you look at the Canadian tech ecosystem, Shopify is the only company that, that has such paid roles. So a big, big problem is that companies want this work done for free when this is a paid, um, like, are you going to hire like, I don't know, like a marketing coordinator to lead your dev work? Like, yeah, yeah. You need people with you know the appropriate skill sets to do the work. Um, so that's that's where it often falls apart because they won't hire sort of a paid lead um, or they won't fully resource the project, and so things just fall flat. They they there's this idea right that somehow this work is like soft, right? It's like that social science humanities sort of soft efforts that somehow is easy to 
to do, but we're talking about structural inequity. So I right. don't know why anyone would think that should be free or cheap to implement, right? right? And, and maybe a question here I have on that is like, you know, oftentimes smaller organizations have a certain budget that they can invest in, right? Um, they, off, they usually have like, say, one or two HR resources. Do you think um, companies should can invest in, say, training of these capabilities in terms of learning diversity and inclusion? Um, you know, maybe because they can't hire like a standalone diversity inclusion uh, officer. Um, so maybe is training another way that they can kind of help address this uh, gap? Totally. And and for like startups and, and like small orgs, if they're in this beautiful spot where they haven't really accumulated to many of these really deep, complex problems yet, right? You're still in that sort of, you know, Early kind of, stage. Yeah, like it's it's so much easier to, to to tackle and and nip things in the bud at that stage. So absolutely, like when we work with with startups and, and scale ups, we will often do a lot of um, certainly like educational related work, but really where we're sort of sharing our understanding and expertise and like giving them the playbook and skill sets and like trying to fill in their gaps, right? Like if someone knows how to rewrite job descriptions. Um, to a certain extent, then, you know, we'll, we'll swoop in and add, you know, the extra resources or, or weigh in and provide feedback so that they can actually learn how to do it move, moving forward. We, yeah, building internal capacity, especially at the, the startup and scale up stage is the best way to do this. And ultimately we wouldn't need chief diversity officers or related roles or external consulting firms like us if orgs did this at, in the early days, early days, yeah, all of their people to have this mindset and to just thread it into their practice, right? Marketing, comms, HR, product, and so forth. For sure, yeah, I, I love that, and that's a great example because I now I, I don't know how you guys feel about this. I'm not going to name names again, but there, I, there's a lot of companies that have, are already established now, and they're hiring for that position, the CDO. Yeah, and it kind of ends up being like a figurehead. It's like they're just there as a role and you don't see it trickle down into anything. So the, the startup uh, uh, like the startup perspective is incredible because now you can build out from the ground up and, and start from start, start from zero, right? Yeah. Um, so on that point, um, and I'm sure this will be a free plug-in for any company, but would you like, do you know of any companies that you think is doing an amazing do- job right now in terms of how they're approaching um, their, their diversity and inclusion kind of playbook? Yeah, I mean, one one organization that, in full transparency, yes, they're a client. Uh, it's uh, the Weather Network, Pelmorex. Right. We've been working with them for a while now, and I'd say they're really thoughtful. They have a really dedicated group. They are paying these folks who are implementing these efforts. Um, Sam Sebastian, uh, their CEO, is all in. Um, they're, they're just committed and they know this is going to be like an incremental ongoing process that, you know, without like a clear finish line. Mm-hmm. And so they've been really cool to sort of witness through this, this process. They are slow, steady and committed. And I think that's, the, that's what we need. That's awesome. So one of the things, I mean, we touched on it a little bit uh, in our earlier question here, but, you know, one of the weaknesses I've seen, and I think many uh, individuals of different minorities or different groups see is like there is a lack of diversity when it comes to the leadership level. So we're talking about C-suite or, you know, maybe a level below that VPs. Um, And so what do you think um, is the issue with in terms of representation and why there's such little representation today? And what do you think companies um, should do in terms of addressing that moving forward? Because 
it's sometimes hard if you can't really see that same individual on your group or level um, and just have a relatability factor to that individual. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it it's a tricky piece for sure. Um, it, I think like really homogenous executive teams have the same problem as homogenous boards, right? They're sort of, those are usually fixed numbers of people, right? So it's not like you can overhaul this overnight unless you're just going to like wipe out your board or fire your full exec team, right? Then this is, this is going to take some time. So I think it's about supporting that internal pipeline, right? So yeah, your, you know, your internal folks to help them sort of get ready to, to take over when there are openings. Um, one model that I really like is the idea of one, two or three sort of empty chairs so sort of adding in kind of like a temporary role on an executive team so that they can immediately start to get um, voices and lenses and frames that are just missing from their group in there, right? And like maybe you just have like maybe that you have people coming in for three month or four month terms, like some sort of like way to just infuse more voices. Um, right. Definitely execs, if you know they're deeply homogenous, like they need to um, open up as many different channels as possible for feedback from their people, right? Across all layers and levels. Um, and those are really important parts. I also think that sometimes organizations need to really look at themselves in the mirror and determine like, are all of these folks at the executive level or on this board sincerely committed? And, and are they actually people who are gonna be in al aligned with where we're going to go on our DEI journey, or are they going to be blockers, mm -hmm. right? Because sometimes people just aren't meant to come with an organization um, as they sort of progress and, and learn and get better, right? So sometimes it also looks like having some hard conversations and sort of weeding out the people who simply don't want a more equitable organization. And people don't like to talk about that part of it. For sure. I think it's a, it is a touchy topic because, you know, once you establish like a leadership team, it's really hard to say, oh, we have to kind of fit whatever the mold is of society. Because um, one, it might be unfair to that individual just being, you know, secluded out. But I feel like, you know, to your point, I never thought about that little rotating seat kind of thing. That's super, super innovative. And I think like a lot of companies could benefit from that. Um, and just maybe having, again, that whole different perspective, I think diversity, just those ideas that come out of a unbiased lens or just a different perspective really helps businesses, I think, scale and grow in different ways that a lot of companies couldn't think of before. I, I also think though, to um, a level of, of leadership that gets overlooked are managers, right? Like managers are that glue. They're often the folks that more junior folks have the most interaction with. So yes, absolutely. You know, work on your executive team, your, your senior levels, your board and so forth, um, and get really intentional and set those targets. But also you can do a lot, right? By really leveling up your managers and ensuring representation at that level as well. And just equipping them, right? So that yeah. your people want to stay, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. Because on the day-to-day, -day, you're more likely to be working with your manager more than um, an executive, so to speak. Um, so one of the things that you mentioned while you were joining this call was that you couldn't uh, update your pronouns on the on Zencaster. And that's what I wanted to talk about uh, next year. So over the past several years, uh, we've kind of witnessed that dialogue around gender identification become politicized um, and in some cases even weaponized. So what I wanted to start with was how did 
gender-related studies become such a polarizing topic in, in today's uh, age right now? Like, what, what can you speak to that on that? How did gender studies become so polarizing? Uh, and, and I'm working off the concept of, you know, representing and, and, and expressing your pronouns that you identify with, because as an example, um, I've had friends who've updated their LinkedIn profiles with their pronouns to say he, her, or he, whatever it is, right? And they've had people message them to be like, why did you feel the need to update this, right? Like they've had people do that. And on the flip side, I my LinkedIn does not have one. And I've had people message me, whether they're bots or not, I'm not sure, but to be like, you know, how am I supposed to, you know, what are you, like, who are, how do we address? And it's like, why is this such, uh, like, how did this become such a polarizing topic today? Interesting. I, I think it's just a lack of understanding, right? Um, generally, I find with any conversation relating to pronouns or beyond, you know, once you actually kind of sit down and have a heart to heart with someone and, and give them some context about why you're doing, you're using such a practice or why you're using such language, um, it, it, it tends to actually be okay. So as it relates to pronouns, um, there's a, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to sort of understand around it, but ultimately for, for me, I, I use pronouns as a signal, uh, to folks, you know, to trans folks to non-binary folks to, you know, folks who, um, whose gender sort of extends beyond the gender binary in the traditional sense. Um, I use, I use them as a signal to normalize the practice, especially for folks who, who use pronouns, um, other than she, her, uh, he, him, right. That we're sort of, that are sort of normalized, right. in at least in North American culture. So I do it because I want to normalize a practice so that other people who perhaps don't feel quite as comfortable sharing their pronouns might feel just a bit more comfortable. Um, and I also use it as a signal to folks that, um, you know, I'm someone who's willing to, to learn and grow and to sort of act in solidarity. And, um, hopefully that's a signal that maybe they'll want to reach out to me, uh, you know, that I can support them in some way. For sure. Yeah. And, and I feel like there's definitely kind of a generational gap in that because this wasn't, or this, this kind of topic wasn't addressed in, in, you know, uh, the past generations and those people are the ones who are in C-suite positions now and not being able to kind of converse with, with the new people coming into the workforce in that, in that range. So can you speak to how we can kind of bridge that gap between the various generations? Because obviously there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like unpacking in terms of where we start that education. Like, I'm not sure if it needs to be right in the workplace or in school, you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. I, I'm of the mindset that there needs to be just a low bar for entry for people who want to get better and learn and, and, you know, elevate social justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion across the board. So when when people make mistakes and they, you know, come to me with a lack of understanding, I view that as an awesome opportunity, right? Because I, I learn things every day. I mess up every day. Um, like there is no end to all that we can ever understand in this space. So um, I think having a really capacious frame on the fact that we're all at different stages of a learning journey and we need to support each other uh, to, to sort of level up our understanding is just important overall, right? Coming to people with blame or shame or like accusatory tones, that sucks. They're probably not going to listen to you and they probably don't want to hear what you have to say. Um, But I think, you know, if 
my, my, my grandmother died a couple years ago, but like before she died, she was well-versed in technology. You know, if she can understand how to operate the latest iPhone and the latest iOS and all of that good stuff, then we can, you know, learn how to continue to evolve our, our practices relating to language or pronouns or, you know, how we interact with people. Growth mindset is everything, right? And if you have executive CEOs who, who don't have growth mindset, that's, that's tough for sure. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and do you that's, think, sorry, sorry, sure. Oh, I was just going to say, do you think that kind of mindset trickles down to the workforce then too? If, uh, you know, I guess leadership always has that mentality and they kind of spread the values and missions down towards a company. And if you're kind of secluded in that thought process of, you know, not changing with times, do you think that spreads? And that's why you see all these issues like uh, turnover in terms of employees and stuff like that start occurring? Totally. I, I, and I, I think I've been learning this myself in a more actualized way in, in recent years. Like the the gaps, the the issues, the unpacked baggage, whatever it is of CEOs, of of execs and leaders. Yeah, for sure, it finds its way into your company culture. So that's a wild responsibility, right? Imagine. Imagine when I think about, especially in in sort of tech or really sort of male dominated industries, like if certain execs had maybe just engaged some mental health support, got some some counseling, some therapy, like they probably wouldn't have such not awesome cultures that they're scared, yeah. right? Like leaders like need to check themselves and work on themselves continually. Yes, because all of our stuff can just bleed out into the organization, and then you know as you grow, you can actually scale it with policies and, and structures and, and, and all of that too, right? And then you actually codify it. I think everyone should go to therapy at least yeah. once. Like there's always something that you don't know about yourself that you're going to unpack there. So yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've been talking about this topic of, uh, you know, ideology here in this sense. Uh, one of the topics that have come up uh, at least last year was, you know, we saw movements that occurred, including BLM. Um, and, you know, during those uh, movements, we saw a lot of individuals take to social media to show their support for the movement. And while others, you know, unfortunately did not, uh, they had kind of the opposite viewpoints. So my question to you is kind of like, how do companies kind of handle differing opinions? And what is like the fine line when it comes to this conversation? Because, you know, when is it clear to an employer that that individual no longer belongs to the company? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, well, I think it starts with organizations getting really clear on their mission, purpose, and values on 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 sort of the rules of engagement or like the sort of the code of conduct that they actually expect of their people. Um, and until they get clear on that, I think it's hard to then determine how everyone fits around that, right? So when organizations really crystallize their values and what they'll stand for and, you know, like a really significant commitment to being a more equitable organization, um, I, I find people just, it becomes obvious, right? When people are no longer going to be aligned, you know, a really good example, like to our, our piece before around pronouns um, is, it's come up many times over the years um, employees refusing to refer to their colleagues by their stated pronouns, mm -hmm. um, saying, why should I do that? Or goodness knows whatever reasons. Um, and then, you know, ultimately that's something that finds its way to HR. And 
so we have a lot of HR leaders reaching out and saying like, well, what do I do? What do I do when someone refuses to refer to someone with their stated pronouns, uh, i.e. they keep misgendering someone over and over in the workplace? Um, and ultimately, what our advice usually is saying, well, that's a performance management issue. That person is not adhering to your stated values as an organization. They were, are refusing to learn and grow. And you know that's what we expect of leaders in 2021 and beyond. So that's a fireable thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and do, do you feel like sometimes, like, uh, I'm just going to be putting it on like two fences. There's obviously conservatism. There's liberalism. And, you know, there's a fine line between, you know, each each of those kind of ideologies. Um, obviously, you know, 2021, I, I feel like we lean more towards like a liberal society. And obviously that's where I say Canada and America is. But for those individuals, say, that are, I say, a bit more conservative, maybe because due to religious practices or other things that have surrounded them through their upbringing, how do we involve and include those individuals in making sure they're not secluded from the work environment? Because, you know, maybe say 80% of the work environment is more liberal or just doesn't understand their ideology. Yeah, I I really think it's about uh, building bridges and creating moments for, you know, communication and sharing stories and sharing their perspectives. Um, You know, we we can all hold sort of the values that we hold, um, but it's also still up to us to treat others within the context of the workplace with mm-hmm. dignity and respect. And it's up to us to affirm them um, as, as they need us to. Right. And so using their stated pronouns would be a good example of affirming people as they, as they ask us to. Right. So I don't think, uh, I, yeah, I think it's about building bridges and, and ultimately, you know, we've had this conversation a lot around um, the use of inclusive language Right. Um, sometimes people say like, oh, my gosh, like I can't say anything anymore. Like, you know, like we're kind of trapped in this PC culture. Um, but my argument often is like, you know, this is about being politically correct. Polit- political correctness is actually useless. Right. Because it doesn't actually let us have real um, authentic conversations. It's sort of just like a like a veneer right. um, that we're functioning within. Um if I find out that I say something, I use a word or a phrase or expression, and then someone comes to me and tells me, you know, like that sucked because, you know, that hurt my feelings because X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to hear that. And then if there is a, a better word or a better phrase or a better expression that I that I can use, then why wouldn't I opt for it? If I can use a language that has a better chance of being affirming to people, um, I'm going to opt for it. Like, it, it's just really simple. Like, these are small things that we can do to just make the world and, you know, any given day easier for each other, especially, you know, in the midst of a pandemic and, you know, a wildly complex world, right? Yeah. Opting to just do what we can. Exactly. And, you know, uh, I, I, I love your approach to that too. It's just not about, you know, being politically correct is more beyond that sense. You have to actually have that dialogue between each other. So I feel like that's a great point you just made. So um, kind of rounding things off here in terms of, you know, the work that you do and also kind of the culture that is within the workplace and in society today, you recently released like a blog on your website related to cultural appropriation around how black content creators were finding, you know, their content at the bottom of pages on apps like TikTok. So, you know, you've 
mentioned, like sometimes uh, applications are not doing that well in terms of the diversity inclusion piece. Can you kind of walk us through your findings and, you know, uh, what came about from this uh, blog? Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the biggest takeaways that we'd, we'd hope folks have from a blog like that is, is that there's just so much of sort of black culture, right? Like things that are developed by black creators that are, they're just not given credit, right? Like they're mm-hmm. not, like there's just, there's just so much that's sort of stolen from, from black culture and that, that sucks. Um, I, I think that's what we care about a lot. And how do we ensure that these creators who are creating all this like brilliant content that's making money for so many people, right? right. Marketers, so many businesses, why aren't they getting a cut of that? Like they deserve to be compensated for their creativity and effort. Um, and I think, I think that's actually something that we're, we're really thinking about. For sure. Yeah. So that kind of wraps up like the bulk of our uh, questions related to your work. We like to kind of round out our podcast episodes with a, a fun little lightning round where we're going to toss a bunch of quick questions at you and hopefully uh, get some interesting answers here. So can you tell us your favorite book or movie of all time? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> that's so hard. Uh, favorite book of all time. Home Alone. I love Home Alone. That's a classic. Okay. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Uh, so you've had a long day at work. You come home. How do you like to unwind? Well, I was already home because, you know. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> so you've had a long day at home. How do you unwind? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I take my dog uh, out. We go down to the water. We go for a run. Uh, Gordon and I, plus fresh air, is, is a good way to do it. Nice. Love it. Dogs are always awesome. Um, so if you were to pick one person to have dinner with, dead or alive, who would that be? Uh, my dad. Uh, he died when I was about six. And yeah, I'd love to know him more as an adult. For sure. We love that. And uh, last year, last question here is, is one of our uh, more our controversial questions, I guess you can say. We like to ask all of our guests, do you like pineapple on your pizza? I like double olives and nothing else. <laughs> You know, it's funny. We, we have this conversation. I think the last like four or five guests have just said no to pineapple. So you're, you're on my kind of side there. So thank you so much. This was, this was kind of a great conversation. I think your, your company is doing incredible work. And um, obviously, it's a testament to the work that you are doing, that people are approaching you more than you have to reach out to them. Um, and we're looking forward to seeing uh, where your company goes and kind of where the culture moves as we kind of learn and educate ourselves more on these topics. Mm-hmm. Well, this year, 2021, is the year of accountability, right? Every organization on the planet released these wild statements, these big, big commitments, right? Um, you know, soon after the murder of George Floyd. And so this year is the year where they need to actually follow up and, and right. act on that stuff. So this is the year where the rubber hits the road. For sure. Yeah. And people tend to have short-term memory so hopefully uh we hold these companies <laughs> accountable well thankfully they have lots of employees who read those statements so <laughs> yeah i i, I want to see how these big tech companies actually implement it in terms of uh not even big tech even just like organizations out of tech uh, you know we saw all those colorized logos and stuff during everything um so let's let's like to your point let's see if it actually happens now